You might know that old saying, if you want to learn something, teach it. That was certainly the case when I taught culinary school. The new version of that old saying for me is, if you want to see how much you know about something, write about it. I'm finishing up a book project, and this podcast episode is about that experience and what might be next and some of what I learned along the way. The Eating Liberty Podcast, episode 231, Food and Freedom Once a Week for Life. Folks, Dan Reed here. I do side hustles, a few of them, to try to earn income here and income there. One of those side hustles is freelancing, freelance writing mostly, although uh, interestingly, or maybe not interesting at all, there was a company that was beta testing, I guess that's the word, um, Anyway, they wanted some research and feedback on a new version of a food handler's test. So I took a couple of tests, and they paid me for taking the test and giving them some feedback. So uh, that was kind of fun. I also accepted a contract to write a book. In the line of everything you wanted to know about chefing, but didn't know who to ask. Now, that's not the title, but you get the idea. And I got to pick the questions. There are 50 questions in all. And I think they are legitimately good questions that somebody who had interest in the restaurant business or in in cooking might want to ask. So that means that uh, I didn't ask, what is the meaning of a toke? Well, I actually thought about asking that question, and there's really nothing unique to that answer that I can provide, except the one thing that is interesting to me is my one of my mentors was a certified master chef gave me his cloth toque. Now that was a really big deal, and I'm they're hot. Holy moly, they're hot. <laughs> they're they're closed with the the. The, the paper, some of them are paper, they're fiber of some, some man-made unnatural fiber of some kind. Uh, some of them are paper and they're crap. But the ones that we used at the Governor's Club were some sort of, I don't know what they were, but they had a hole on the top, which was really useful when it was hot, hot, hot in Tallahassee. That cloth one that Jack gave me was, holy smokes, just unbearable. But starched to the max, it was very impressive. So, uh, some of the questions are, you know, what is what is it like the day uh, in the day of a life of a chef? Um, some questions I think are important for young culinarians to know. Uh, things like, does a chef have to know math? <laughs> well, it, it 
it should be obvious, but the answer is yes. Now, I don't think a chef needs to know trigonometry and not going to be figuring out uh, how long is the wooden spoon from the shadow it makes uh, on the cutting board. Um, but a chef is going to need to know how to increase or decrease a recipe for portion quantities. Uh, some of the questions math-related involve what is food cost, what is labor cost, which are fundamentally critical to understand if you're running the business. Uh, one of the questions also equally fundamental is what is, what is yield? What does that mean? And, and it's, a, it's, a surprising, it's a surprising thing to find out. So when you are at home peeling a carrot for whatever the thing is you're doing, and by the way, wash it, don't peel it. There's no reason to peel it. If you peel a 50-pound bag of carrots, again, no reason to do that, but if you did, or potatoes, 50-pound bag of potatoes, you will not end up with 50 pounds of peeled potatoes. That's sort of obvious, except how much is lost? Now, I don't actually have the answer to that, but I'm going to guess probably 5 to 10% of 50 pounds is going into the trash bin. Well, that 5 pounds of potatoes that we'll, ju we'll just guess 50 cents a pound, because I don't think a 50-pound bag of box of potatoes is 50 bucks. It might be. I haven't bought one in a while. But let's just say it's 50 cents a pound. So a box of potatoes, 50-pound box of potatoes is $25. Just throw away 250 or $5. My math isn't that good that fast. But anyway, the point is um, that represents cost. You paid for the garbage. One of my biggest pet peeves in the yield department was celery. Now we buy you know, in a restaurant, you don't buy a stock of celery, you buy a case of celery. I think there's like 36 heads of celery there. It's going to last a long time. So what is very common, probably even at home, is to whack off the bottom inch or two of the celery where the root and the vast majority of the dirt is in that bottom portion, and you just throw it away. Now, at some point in the restaurant, because you're paying for the case, and you, you, so let's say, let's just say you are throwing away one tenth of a head of celery every time you get a new one from the walk-in, and you get a new one from the walk-in every day. So, in in a month and days, because there's thirty-six in the case. You're going to go through a case of celery. And by throwing away one-tenth of a head, you've thrown away 3.6 heads of celery. At whatever the cost was. So now you have two and a half pounds of potato trash, three heads of celery trash. Um, and before you know it, your produce bill adds up. Now, produce can actually be kind of expensive. Where that really hits home is if you are a restaurant that's trimming your own steaks. If you're at, now, even at home, it's it's tough. It's tough at home because I buy cut steaks 
at home. I don't buy a whole strip loin at 12 to 14 pounds to go home and cut a New York strip because that's a lot of money. It's a lot of steak. What do I do with it? But the restaurant that does trim the New York strip loin, the strip loin to cut New York's, is going to end up with just shy of, let's say it's a six, let's say it's a 12 pound strip loin. You're going to end up with approximately six pounds of New York strips. Depending how you cut them, 10 ounce, 16 ounce, 12 ounce, it doesn't matter. You're going to end up with about six pounds of steaks and five, three, five pounds or so of six pounds of unservable trim. And some of that trim can be cut into uh, cubes or sliced for stir fries or soups or other kinds of things. Some of that is just fat and silver skin. The fat can be rendered down. So there's nothing that's actually a waste on that strip loin. And the rest the smart restaurant is going, the smart chef is going to know how to utilize the other stuff. The New York is going to be the, the majority of the recouping the cost of that steak. But the, the fat is turned into tallow, and you can use that for sautéing. You can use that in making sausages, hot dogs. The service skin turns into stock, and you get the money back out of that in soup. You've put money in there in labor. Um, the the part, it has different names. Some, some, I guess it's kind of a country thing. It seems to me, and I'm not sure this is actually the case across the whole country, but Canada seems to call the good end of the strip loin the rare end, and the other end, which is which the strip loin starts to become part of the top sirloin, the two pieces of meat are together on a strip loin, and in America they call that the vein end, and the strip loin, now here's an interesting thing, and I don't know why this came to be, but ever since I was a young cook, 19... I was told, and by a certified master chef, no less, that the vein end is tough, and we don't serve the vein end. Well, okay, we don't do that. Why? Because it's tough. The better reason, and another reason, is the aesthetics. It doesn't look nice on a plate. And there's a big hunk of sinew in there, and it's not easy to eat. So there's a lot of there's, there's at least two reasons. It's not pretty, and it's challenging to eat. There's a couple of reasons to not serve it. And maybe that's the part they meant was the tough part because of that big sinew. But here's the thing. One day, years later, I said, you know what? Everyone's been telling me this is the tough end. I'm going to cut this piece, this little top soiling cap off. I'm going to cook it, and I'm going to taste it and see, is this tough? Well, holy crap. Hey, nothing close to tough. I thought it was delicious. So now it's like, wow, this is really a thing. So back at the restaurant in Tallahassee, when we got down to that vein end, obviously I'm not cutting steaks out of it because it's not pretty, but that top sirloin end turned into another dish. That was a pasta special or some other kind of a beef, oh, beef ragouts, man, those were good. So there's things to do. Even at home, I actually sort of seek those steaks out because I think they taste good and I can deal with the sinew there. I'm not bothered by that. I just cut around it. Um, what's harder to do at home 
if they don't trim the steak right is if they leave too much fat on there. I'm paying premium price for the fat that I, I will trim and I will render down and use for something. But it's just like, come on, guys. I would rather have more meat on my steak <laughs> than extra fat on my steak. Um, but those are things that a chef should certainly know about. Um, and the... Uh, and that was one thing, actually, in writing about yields for New York's, it was this week, as of this speaking, that I figured out, found out, that that piece of meat everybody seemed to rail on, and the, and the everybody part is, um, in trying to get the answer to what is that piece of meat coming into the, that little part of the strip loin, I watched more than a few videos, and everybody had a name for the end. It's the vein end. It's the well end. But not one single person identified the piece of meat, and everybody said it's the tough end. So it made me think that not one of those people bothered to take the time to actually taste that piece of meat. Cut it off and see what happens to it. So I thought that was interesting. So one of the things I learned in writing about this topic and writing this book is it's and it's probably not restricted to the food industry, but because that's the thing I know the most, I can say that it is definitely part of the food industry is when somebody in a position of knowing gives you as a young person in that job, doesn't necessarily mean young in years, but maybe this is a new job for you, you're three weeks on the job and you're 55 years old. So if it's a new thing to you and someone says this is the case, you're really not in a position to question them. And it certainly isn't going to go over well if you say, well, yeah, I doubt that. Well, that's obviously not the right thing to do. But... Because they've said so, it's at least worth thinking to yourself, I wonder if this is actually the case or if there is, maybe this is a convenient answer. Maybe we say it's the tough end, so no one's going to question us. Tough how? Well, we can't make it that. I mean, it, becomes, it becomes an easy discussion to terminate, especially when you're the chef or the boss. Say, this is just not something we do. And okay, well, that's fine. So I found out from practice that it does taste good. I enjoyed it. Maybe you won't enjoy it, but I did. Uh, so it's worth it's it's worth at least being curious about information you're given that seems for the job it's perfectly appropriate. We don't serve it, it's tough. Okay, whatever. But ask the question to yourself, wonder. I wonder if that's the case, and if it is or if it isn't. Um, some things I would say not to do, you're welcome to check. Um, I would say don't eat shrimp with shells on them. I've tried it. I found it absolutely hideous. Now, it is entirely possible probably that you could cook the shrimp in such a way that the shell becomes really crispy. You could probably add some kind of a spice to it, maybe barbecue it somehow or a way that the crunch and the added flavor becomes a, becomes something that's 
enjoyed on that shrimp. I struggle greatly to figure out what a thing could be added to a shrimp in a shell that makes the shell something I would look forward to eating. Then maybe that's just a failing on my own limited myopic imagination, and I'm willing to accept that. One of the things I think is, and again, so we're speaking about the chef, but there's there's probably parallels to nearly every other leader, boss, manager, whatever the term is, coach that you would want to put in, in place of the chef. And one of the things, so you know, chefing has, has several aspects to it. One aspect is what is seen on major network TV and cable networks. And uh, it's been more than a few years now, but when Morimoto and Bobby Flay challenged each other to, I think it was when Iron Chef be- came to America and it was a very big deal and they, they pimped it for maybe months. And Bobby Flay jumped up on the counter onto his cutting board and Morimoto just about had a stroke. Well, he was right to have a stroke. Bobby was, Bobby was wrong for stepping onto a cutting board. Um, but the whole Iron Chef thing, it's, I think, I think the cooking and the stress is real. Uh, I think there's no resemblance whatsoever to the real-life kitchen situation because they spare no budget whatsoever in getting the absolute best ingredients the world has to offer. <laughs> go, to your local, go to your local restaurant, your mom-and-pop restaurant. They don't have that. They have Cisco. They have U.S. Foods. They have... They have Frank's provisions, whatever they've got. And the vendor has a choice. We have tomatoes. You have two choices. Take it or leave it. Well, all right then. So that's one side of Chef Dumbo. They see Auntie and Gordon Ramsay. Gordon, Gordon, Gordon can cook. Um, Gordon also knows how to sell ads because Hell's Kitchen's what now in 19 seasons and now there's a different version of it. So Fox is obviously very happy with Gordon and they both made each other a tremendous amount of cash. And that's kind of, maybe, I really don't know, the stereotype of chefs still there was a time when chefs actually were, you know, I, I worked for the first certified master chef in the United States, first certified master chef ever. He was a Czechoslovakian, tough son of a bitch. And I mean, Gordon, whatever. I had I worked for Milos, give me a break. Gordon's fine. Um, but that's not how, it's not how people want to be treated anymore, even in fine dining. That's just not really going to fly, even though probably on some level yelling and screaming is is tolerated because it's part of the job, because the environment of the the, the, the pressure is difficult to explain 
I've never been a surgeon, so I don't, I can't equate that. But I would, I would imagine that being a surgeon, say doing open heart surgery, and the patient starts to do things that are unexpected and life threatening to the patient, there's a moment of incredible stress, pressure, and urgency to fix the thing that went wrong. I don't know how to do that. There is a much less serious, although at the moment that happens, equally palpable stress, pressure, and urgency to do to get the food started that just came in, get the food plated that's just going out, turn around and continue cooking the food that you started before you just started this other order. It's a lot going on and it can become absolute chaos, except it's not. There's order to it. It's, it's to the untrained eye. It doesn't look like order whatsoever. When you're under the basketball net and there's 10 guys scrumming for the ball, it looks for all the world, it looks like it's a rugby tournament for about two seconds. And maybe that actually is disorder. I don't know. But a line in service has order to it. Even those Hell's Kitchen's line, when one guy is really messing up and he's brought the scalps for the fourth time, because they're making errors doesn't mean it isn't ordered. And I know that doesn't make any sense. But all of that is to get into the point that for all those jobs, whatever those jobs are, maybe the surgeon and the chef and the guy doing who runs the drill, the guys in charge of the guys who run the drill press and the sanding machines and whatever else is out there changing out the 24 valves in, in the engines. I can't speak engine. Civility goes a long way. Please and thank you. And so for, for the chef, even though at 7.30 when 15 tables got sat at the same time and all the waiters are putting in the orders at the exact same time and that little rip, 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 the machine's just vomiting tickets. And all the cooks are going, oh my effing lord. Civility. We'll get the job done with much more success and gratitude and actually, better cooking, all the cooks know that hell's about to show up. Everybody who hears that machine knows what's coming. Yelling and screaming at them to move the rats and hurry up and calling them names and telling them they're incompetent actually doesn't help them do the job better, faster, and more efficiently. It's amazing. And quite possibly, that is the single most important thing chefs need to learn. Some chefs know it. There was one guy, actually I worked with one guy, my God, he was civil. <laughs> Even unrattleable, rattleable, unfazed. 
had a sense of urgency when he needed it. And he's saying you knew it in his voice, but he was kind. He was polite. And, and he was the pleasure to work with. And then there are some people who knew more than I did who were rude as hell. And pleasure probably wasn't the first thing that comes to mind. But I got something out of their knowledge after, after we walked through hell. And come back the next day and do it all over again. So the first thing a chef needs to know, in my opinion, isn't, is. Let's start with what is. The first thing a chef needs to know is good people skills. And that's probably always been the case. It just never really happened. I saw a post today in one of my Facebook chef groups. And it was the photo of a man uh, had his back to the camera. Maybe he didn't know his picture was being taken. And he was scrubbing, scrubbing pots, scrubbing pans. And the information about the photo, and the man was in the white shirt and black pants. So some of you know what that means. The information about the photo was, this is the owner. The dishwasher was having some really serious problems at home, trying to get things organized, and just wasn't, it was there but not present. Said, go home. Tend to your family. Do what you need to do. And the owner was washing dishes, scrubbing pots and pans. And the chef who posted this picture said, that's why this place has next to no turnover. Because when something needs to get done, this man, the owner, shows up and does it because he needs to get done. Doesn't stand back with his arm crossed, pointing and directing and saying, you do it. He gets in and fixes it. And people don't leave a guy like that. No matter how much you know, if you can't treat people nicely, and and it's not those moments of bursting, is that that's you will be forgiven for that, even if it's every day. But if you have moments of bursting and you don't help, and you don't show kindness, and you don't show a sense of humanity, let the dishwasher go home because something really important is at home and they needs him. That dishwasher is not going to quit. He'll be for the next 10 years. You got a guy for life. And he could turn out to be the next executive chef 10 years down the road because that guy, that, that employee just found the guy who cares about him as much as his own family. That's a big deal. And that's rare everywhere. So number one lesson for chefs, be nice to people. You don't have to be a dick. Everybody knows when it's busy that profanity is woven like a nice tapestry. Everybody gets that. It's the before and after part that doesn't, that when it's not necessary, don't do it. There was a second point, but I think it pales in comparison to the first. Oh, and maybe the second one is just don't be too big for any job. You're, the chef is, yeah, the chef is the hire and the fire and the order and the checker inner and the butcher and the baker and the saucier and the soup maker and the expediter and the janitor and the electrician and the plumber and the dishwasher.
And the chef that won't be the janitor and the plumber and the dishwasher probably isn't going to be very much help when the shit hits the fan. Yeah, I just said that. When the poop hits the fan. And that place will have turnover. And he'll wonder why. So the other thing I found interesting is the future of food. And that was one of the questions I asked. And there... So back... Good grief. 30 years ago or so, maybe longer, maybe even more recent than that, I don't know. Um, maybe it is still going on, so maybe that's wrong. There was a time, even even in the U.S., but sometimes American chefs could go to France, and I don't really, I didn't do that, so I don't know what's involved. I think you had to have a job set up to go to, um, and again, I don't know if this is true, I think that mostly that job didn't pay you. They might give you uh, a place to stay, which could be counted as a pay, and they'd feed you, but in terms of actual paycheck, you might not have gotten one. So you would be an unpaid intern. Unpaid interns are remain um, part of the food industry. And the reason this is... The reason I'm bringing this up is because the uh, people who decide such things, Noma, I think, in Spain, said to be currently one of, if not the best restaurant on the planet, recently announced that they are closing in 2023 or 2024. One of the prime reasons is they've decided that they're going to pay their interns instead of having their interns work for free. Uh, interns don't work leisurely hours. And what the chef discovered, Renee something, is that they can't be solvent and pay their interns which is a fascinating idea that your business model revolves around, we'll call it voluntary labor because there are other words to it and that assumes things that I don't know. So that's a big problem. If, you're, if your business model includes voluntary labor and you can't afford to pay for everybody, lots and lots and lots of hands to produce food at that level. I don't know what that means for the future of fine dining. It may not mean anything. Um, there's a good chance, and I don't go to fine dining. My town doesn't have that. Um, I mean, they think they do, but I'm talking about the likes of Per Se and the French Laundry and, um, and Danielle in New York, and there are a few other ones. Uh, there's many other ones, but those are the ones that I know and possibly you also know. I don't know what it means for those restaurants. I don't know what it means for the future of voluntary internship. I don't necessarily know how I feel about that, and that's not a topic for this episode. But a business plan needs to account for paying for everybody if you're going to stay in business. And if your business plan means you can't do that, then I think that that's a problem. But then anyway, that's another thing. Um, the Somebody, well, is put out by a credit card processing company. 
uh, thing about the future of restaurants for 2023. And I was going through it because it was interesting. And one of the things that seems to be a source of revenue for lots of restaurants, there's a few things going on at the same time. One is uh, merchandise. Maybe it's a bottle of that restaurant's spicy kick butt salsa or a cap or a t-shirt or a keychain or a sticker or all of that. Um, merch seems to be an increasing and expected to be a more increasing source of revenue for restaurants. What also seems to be happening or possibly going on is that now I don't know how this is going to work and, and I'm, I'm, I have some passing knowledge of one, one restaurant decides to open a second completely different restaurant uh, and possibly a third. So you have a fine-ish dining and then you go to a uh, – so let's say what we're going to call fine dining coat and tie or at least coat. Um, so good food, but casual dress. So might even be the same kind of food, but we're going to change the dress code so it feels a little bit more approachable. So you think, so you feel you could bring your kids here. Um, you can hang out and come in at flip flops and everything's fine. Uh, and then let's say that restaurant opens a bar, has bands. And so now this one company has three or four different things. You're a hyphenated company. And I think that that's, according to this report, that's something that might be happening more and more is by, by expanding these businesses, somehow you're going to increase your revenue but not proportionally increase your expense. I don't understand how all that works, but that's not really the point of, of this talk. Um, so one of the things that a restaurant will need to think about in 2023 and beyond, uh, certainly in the U.S., is what to do, how to respond to what is bound to be inflationary pressures still existing and quite possibly a recession upcoming. Uh, people who know more about this than I have been talking for a couple of years since several White Houses have been printing cash like it's their job. Um, that comes with a known and predictable consequence. The only thing that isn't known is the timing, but that it will happen is is absolute. <laughs> There's no avoiding it. And the bubble will pop. Several of them will pop. When? Who knows? But when it does, it's going to be messy. And restaurants will have to find ways to respond, which could include the one of the ways that McDonald's and other fast food chains seem to be responding is automation. Um, and as you can find on certain social media platforms, uh, a walk with a little conveyor belt of ingredients and the walk is on a robotic arm. And it, the robotic arm is designed to create the 
action of tossing the food in the pan like a cook would do. Uh, and then the food is arranged in a particular way. And then the little robot arm tops over the bin and adds the next ingredient, next ingredient, everything's portioned out and the thing even puts it on a plate for you. So oh, I don't know what those, those things got to be five, $10,000, but it doesn't necessarily take that long to recover the cost of that thing that might only need repairs and never calls out, can work 24 seven. So automation's a thing. Um, reducing hours of the dining room, reducing the number of items for sale, reducing the number of staff to do that stuff. Um, maybe you turn from dining room to walk-up counter. So there is no dining room. You walk up, you order food, and you either take it away or take it away. You have two choices, take it or take it. So all this remains to be seen, but it does seem at least interesting. Um, so anyway, that part uh, about this report I didn't include in the book because I'm, I'm not a fortune teller. I'm not clairvoyant. Um, but it is. But I certainly can talk about and did talk a little bit about you know, food food trucks seemed, by God, they're growing. Food trucks are everywhere. And that's really cool because you can really, you can niche down tacos. Well, a big deal. Come on, let's get serious. You've got, you have cassava, chocolate, cassava, cocoa, taco shells, and I don't know. <laughs> Funny joke. And top sirloin from your strip loin, taco meat with scotch bonnet and Tupelo honey barbecue sauce. Now, that's a particular niche. I mean, that that is narrowed in. You have got a particular audience. You're going to exclude a lot of folks probably, but the people who want that will be there every day. And that's what a food trust can do. And they're here in my town. They're everywhere. And they are quite particular. A mac and cheese truck. You know how many different ways for a mac macaroni and cheese? There's a lot. And they're busy. They're busy, busy, busy. So food trucks is a thing. Um, you know, restaurant, walk-up restaurant. The, the Well, pop-up restaurants are a thing. Um, the the food counter thing. No tables. You just walk up, get your food, and we're going to make we're gonna make tacos. We're going to make, you know, niche stuff. We're going to have four choices, and we'll just sell it like crazy. Cook to order. That's hot stuff. I think we'll see more of that. All right, folks. That's going to do it. I'm going to put a show notes page up, but I don't have any links to give. So the book, as of this publication, is due soon to the client who uh, is paying me to write it. Now, the thing I don't know about and have no control over is what happens to it once I give it to her. If it, if it gets published, and I really want it to because I put a lot of work into it. I'm excited about it. Um, if it gets published, I'll certainly let you know what's going on about that uh, and give you a link for it if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, 
but there's a lot of unknown, and, and most of that is what happens next. I have no idea what happens next. Interestingly, though, um, I, I am coming up with other questions that I didn't ask, so um, there, there, there might be a, there might be more. I don't know. We'll see what happens, but anyway. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you being here. This was a fun talk. And thank you very much to my Patreon supporters. Um, uh, it won't be up as of listening to this on Monday's release, but sometime this week um, I'm going to endeavor to put up for the patrons uh, the I, I have a picking crab demo when we did when I had the Dungeons Crab. Uh, boy, that was fun. Um, and just for <laughs> so if you if you pick crab, you have all these shells. What do I do with the shells? Oh my gosh, save the shells. So make stock from the shells, and really all you need to do you can add vegetables to them. But if you're going to make so I I made stock rose the shells made stock today, no veggies because I turned that stock into crab bisque, and then that gets the veggies. Um, the the ancient uh, bisque ancien is to thicken it with bread dried stale breadcrumbs. I did sort of the modern version from the eighteen whatever thirties forties, um, when Scoffy used rice. But I modernized that. It wasn't my idea. It was Jack Shoop's idea to use rice flour. And the, the diff and so it thickens nicely. It doesn't leave any bad aftertaste, doesn't leave any textural change, and it's just genius. Really, really worked nice. So I was very excited about that. So if you clean crabs, clean lobster, clean shrimp, save the shelf, make soup, make bisque, make stock, do something, shrimp chowder, uh, crab chowder, lots of things to do. Anyway, so that picking crab part will be up this week. Um, and I know my record for that isn't very good, but I will do that. And... Uh, and that's that. I hope you have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.